we begin this morning, I want you to think about a couple of scenarios that would be really, in all honesty, sort of ridiculous. Many of you know that in years past, when I graduated from Murray State, I, I went back to my alma mater in Louisville, and I was a teacher and baseball coach there. I'll be honest with you, I went into teaching so that I could coach baseball, and so I put a lot of focus into my coaching baseball. Those of you that are educators, you're cringing, and I understand, and you can chew me out later or think less of me, but that's the reason. I love coaching baseball, and so I took the path of least resistance, majored in history, and I, I tried majoring in math, by the way. Those of you that are math majors, that lasted about two weeks, and dropped those classes, changed my major. And here I am. So anyway, I went back to coach baseball. And, I, you know, baseball was a big part of my life. I had played there at that school, had a great experience. And so I went back to try to help those kids that were then coming through and try to at least give them something back to what was given me. And, and there were obviously many opportunities for me to uh, extend a coaching hand, so to speak, when I would coach infielders or hitters pitchers or whatever it may be on a particular day, there were certain things when I noticed they were doing something wrong, it was my responsibility to correct that. It was my responsibility to help them feel what they were doing wrong, learn a new way to do it so that they could be as successful as possible playing baseball. And there were times when, uh, when I had to do that. There were times when they didn't think anything was going wrong and, and I had to say, well, you know, this needs correction or you're not doing this quite right. There were times when they knew something was wrong, they just couldn't figure it out. They said, Coach, can you help me? What, what am I doing wrong? It would be ridiculous for a person who claims to be a coach not to coach. It would be ridiculous for a person who is in the position of coach to just stand there and let mistakes happen and let them go unresolved and uncorrected. It would be ridiculous. If you've ever played a sport before, you know that when something is going wrong, it's the coach's responsibility to come in and say, hey, let's fix this. Another ridiculous scenario on a much different scale would be if you can imagine for a second a person who lives close to you, maybe a neighbor, maybe someone across the way, across the street, whatever it may be, and you notice you walk out of your home and you notice their house is on fire. Except there's no movement whatsoever. No one's exited the home. They seem to all be inside. You know their home, and they're not outside, and yet you notice their house is on fire. But you don't say anything. You just assume, well, they'll figure it out. You know, they, they'll smell the smoke. I mean, they'll feel the heat. You know, eventually, I mean, they'll, 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 they'll figure it out. They'll, they'll correct it themselves. They'll, they'll call the fire department. They'll, they'll do something about it. It would be ridiculous for you to notice that and not do anything, not say anything, not beat down their door if need be to say, your house is on fire, something is wrong, please get out. It would be ridiculous for a coach not to coach. Ridiculous for a person who notices a fire not to say anything. Ridiculous not to help when you know about it, when you know how to help, and when you're in position to help. And in a very real way, if you hang around church long enough, you'll realize that church, no church, is a perfect place. If you're a perfect person, we invite you to go somewhere else because you're going to mess us up. Because we are imperfect. And you're just going to throw everything out of whack here. So if you're a perfect person or one who thinks you are, we hope that uh, you'll realize today your imperfection. Or if you're just perfect, that there's another church down the road who needs your perfection. We are imperfect. And so 
In all seriousness, though, if you hang around long enough, you'll notice very easily and very quickly, church is not perfect. It's full of imperfect people. And there are times when people inside the church need coaching. When there are times when folks inside the church need people to tell them your, your spiritual house is on fire. Something is going really wrong. When someone wonders from God, what do you do? When someone's spiritual house is on fire, what do you do? When someone needs some spiritual coaching, what do you do? What do you do when that happens? What do you do with someone like that? We are ending our series today on James. 21 weeks. But you never thought we could get 21 weeks out of a five-chapter book, but we did. We were recapping uh, today a little bit and, and, and sort of rounding things out. We've been in a series uh, thus far called Authentic Christianity. James, a wonderful and very practical book. Uh, at first, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of theology there, but if you understand the God who is behind all of that, you realize God calls us not to a wordy faith, but to a, a committed faith. Uh, faith is not to be merely empty words, but a life full of commitment to the Lord. And so we've seen in James over the last several weeks, what is it that that we should be about if we are to be authentic Christians. How should our lives look? We round that out today, and this is a preview. Next week, by the way, we will begin a new series called The Making of a Christian Family. And for some, that hits very close to home because you are right now in the midst of having your family with you. You still are a, a parent who has children in your home. But it is not going to be strictly about just raising children. So don't take a few weeks off if that's not your stage of life. It will be about being the right person. How can you as a man, as a woman, as a husband, as a wife, as a, a family member of some sort, how can you help make your family be the right kind of family, the, the kind that God wants? And so we'll begin that next week. But this week we want to close out our series on James with the last two verses in this particular book. So if you've got your Bible, turn with me to James chapter 5. James, of course, hopefully by now if you've been here each week, you have a a worn-out spot there in James. Your Bible is sort of creased at that particular location, and you can easily find it. And if not, if this is your first time here, maybe your person is unfamiliar with the Bible, but you brought one, we'd love for you to turn there. If you turn to the end of the, of the Bible, you'll get to Revelation. Turn back to the left just a little bit. And James is there just a few books back. James, of course, uh, the half-brother of Jesus, who came to faith in the Lord after the Lord's resurrection, wrote this letter to a group of Jewish Christians who had been scattered because of their faith. They'd been persecuted. They were scattered. He's writing to them to help them understand what authentic Christianity is all about. And so in their difficult times, their times of trouble, he's writing to help them. And we get to the end of, of the book, and he says this in verse 19. My brothers, if any of you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, he should know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his life from death and cover a multitude of sins. Let's read that again. My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, he should know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his life from death and cover a multitude of sins. As we begin this morning, I want to give you a guiding principle for today. It's listed there on the back of your bulletin. The guiding principle for today that we will look at and come back to and everything will center around is this, that authentic Christians lovingly help correct and restore those who wander from God. Authentic Christians lovingly help, correct, and restore those who wander from God. 
Now, it's fitting for James to close with this. He spent uh, the previous verses uh, in, in the previous four chapters telling us what authentic Christianity looks like, how we can know our faith is real, how we should live and not just have empty words. And he closes by describing what really is bound to happen. Somebody's going to wander from God. In any church, in any group of believers, there's going to be somebody, maybe several somebodies, who wander from God. There are going to be people, and from time to time, you may have been that person, you've known that person, who are going to drift, turn away from the Lord. And so, someone wonders from this truth, he says, that's found in God's Word, the truth found in Jesus Christ. What should be done? How should we handle those who've wandered from God? How do those who have not wandered handle those who, who have? Now, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say anything about ignoring the issue. Now, this would be great if James said, look, if somebody's wandering from the truth, just let them go. Just let them make their own mess. You know, let them, let them just reap their own harvest. You know, you reap what you sow. Just let them learn their lesson the hard way. Just that's the way it is. Just give them tough love. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't say, just sort of pretend it's not really happening. He doesn't say that. The truth, he says, by implication, that we have a responsibility to one another. We have a, a responsibility to the church to lovingly help, to lovingly correct, and to lovingly restore those who have wandered from God. Now, obviously, that's much easier said than done. It's easy for me to get up and say, well, we just need to help those people. We need to correct them. We need to restore them as best we can. The truth is, that's downright scary to some people. You're thinking, not me. Look, if you want to go do that, you, you have at it. But you leave me out of it. I'm not saying anything to anybody. They want to, you know, whatever. I'm going to live my life, and I'm fine, and they're, you know, they can do whatever they want to do. Now, I understand that. It's, it's scary sometimes. You think about this particular truth that James is driving home the point that it's our responsibility to help. It's, it's really not an option. It's not something we get to choose and and then decide not to. It's our responsibility to help and to correct and to restore those who have wanted from God. In fact, in our culture, not only is it scary to us, but in our culture, it's sort of taboo to do this. You, you know that anytime somebody uh, offers something that would indicate that they believe somebody is wrong in any way, they, they are then villainized. I mean, they, are, they are portrayed as a person who is, who is unreasonable, who is intolerant, uh, who, who, who really is, is, is bigoted to a large extent. In our culture today, if you were to go to someone and say, look, you know, I, I love you, I, I understand, I, I get your situation, but what you're doing is wrong. What's going to be the response? Well, who are you to tell me that what I'm doing is wrong? You mind your own business. Now, I know none of you have said that to anybody at all, but you've heard that, Right? Okay? I, I remember when I was playing baseball at Murray State, and I, <laughs> I'll tell myself for just a second. I think. When I was a freshman and sophomore at Murray State, <clears throat> um, those of you that, that, that have not seen me compete athletically, um, you wouldn't know that, that when I get on the field, I, I shift gears just a little bit. Um, I'm there uh, for one purpose, and that is to win. Now, now understand, if I'm playing, you know, uh, frisbee or something today, I'm not out there. I'm not going to knock you down. But when I was playing uh, collegiate athletics, my purpose was not to make friends. My purpose was to win the game. So when my coach told me to go do, I'm going to go try to win the game. 
I also, I, I, had a, I had a difficult time tolerating the imperfections of, of the uniformed police, so to speak, known as the umpires. Umpires and I just, we, we there's just something that we just saw the world differently. I don't know what it was. But I was ejected from three games my freshman and sophomore years at Murray State. And one of them I deserved. The other two I really didn't feel like I deserved them. And, and one of them I, I just, I did. I, did, I told the umpire it was awful. And, and that was my work. Was, you're, you're pitiful. And when you say something like that to an umpire, they tend to take it personally. I don't know why. But he told me I was no longer allowed to play in that game, and, and so, and, you know, and then I told him how pitifully really was, and it wasn't any good, and so, anyway, so, so here, here I am, okay, now understand my situation. Two things then happened as a result of that. One, I get this letter in the mail from my dad before my junior year. My dad is a man of few words, but, you know, most of the time it's full of wisdom, and so I, oh, man, all right, some inspiration from dad. How about that? And on this little note was written just a few words, and it said, let this verse be your guide for this upcoming season. Now, granted, I'd already been tossed three times the previous two years, and Proverbs 29.11. Okay, man, great, great inspiration. I go to Proverbs 29.11. You know what Proverbs 29.11 says? It says, a fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man holds it back. I said, thanks a lot, Dad. <laughs> Call me a fool, you know. Thanks a lot. My dad had to lovingly help me and correct me. And it worked. I didn't get ejected anymore after that because I knew that dad was not going to be real pleased. He wasn't pleased to begin with. And then that, that same junior year, I remember having a, a, con a conversation with a guy in the dugout who was mouthing to one of the umpires. Now I say all this because I, I, I know what it takes to get thrown out of a baseball game. And, and I told this guy, I said, hey, you better watch it. Listen, if anybody knows, I do. Don't, don't tell the umpire something personally about him. Don't tell him he's awful, whatever. This guy looked at me. Now, here are the two sides of the coin. He looked at me and he said, look, you worry about you and I'll worry about me. One of my teammates put his finger in my chest and said, you worry about you and I'll worry about me. All I was trying to do was, based upon my experience, when someone had helped me and someone had corrected me, when someone had restored me, I was trying to return the favor. So as we look at this this morning, it's much easier said than done. My dad was able to do that for me. I was unable to do it for my teammate. How then should we handle those folks who in a very real way, far beyond a, a meaningless baseball game or a silly example, how can we help those people in our world today that says, you worry about you and I'll worry about me? What do you do? When it goes against the culture, I think it's evident in, in both the book of James and, of course, the whole New Testament, the whole Bible, just how countercultural life is to be for Christians and in the church. And so, just because something like what we discussed today is not accepted in our culture, it doesn't mean that we are off the hook. So, I want to look at some specific elements of, of what's involved here in this scenario that James described. First of all, let's look at who is involved. Who is involved? First of all, there's the wanderer. When you have this scenario, James describes, just like I was, the person who could not control my temper on the baseball field, much the same, you have spiritual wanderers. You have people who have wandered, it says, from the truth. And it says, any among you, verse 19, it says, if any among you strays from the truth. This could be anybody. It could be the person sitting next to you. It could be the person you haven't seen in years. 
It could be any among you, it says. If any among you strays from the truth, someone who has gone their own way. The truth of the gospel is what he's talking about. The truth of new life in Christ. The truth of Scripture, which requires holiness and devotion to the Lord. The truth that James has presented in his letter here. He's talking about that truth. The truth found in Jesus Christ. This person, this wonderer, is called that and any among you. Also in verse 20, that person is called a sinner. In verse 20. So what do do we conclude? Who's he talking about? Well, uh, the conclusion very well may be that James is talking about someone from within the church who is a true believer, who is what we historically would call a backslider. There's someone who is falling away from the Lord, and they're going the opposite direction. They're living in sin, and they are sliding away from the Lord. That could be who he's talking about. It could also be, and we're we're not totally clear on this, though, um, though we have some ideas, it could also be, uh, a person who may be in the life of the church, but is displaying nothing that would indicate that they are a true believer. They're living in direct disobedience to the Lord. Uh, there has been no life change whatsoever since they've professed faith in Jesus Christ. So it could be that it is a true Christian who's simply walking away from God in certain areas, or it could be a person who claims to be a believer, but really is not, because their life does not demonstrate any of that. So you have this wanderer. Now, obviously, there's a connection from what we looked at last week. Remember last week, if you were here, we talked about the fact that sometimes in life you just get weak. You get weary. You, you feel like giving up. Now, if you trace the, the, the progression here, you begin by just feeling overwhelmed. You, you sort of you have issues in your life that are beating you down, and, and you're, you're getting weak, and you're getting weary. Obviously, if you play that out, it can lead to wondering. Those who have been uh, crushed by life's experiences, though you may be a believer, it can cause you... Uh, if, if you choose to wander into a life of sin. Maybe you've experienced that. You say, life got so bad, I did this. I, I began this habit because life was, was so overwhelming, whatever it may be. So there's a connection to last week. It could be that this is a person, as I said, who's in the church, a true believer, but is wandering from God. It could also be a person who's professed faith in Jesus, but really has had no life change whatsoever. It's not necessarily a person, obviously, who's antagonistic to the Lord, though that could be the case. It could be a person who's simply deceived and moving through life as if they don't know Jesus. And I want to say this, that a person that he's talking about doesn't have to stray from the church in order to stray from the Lord. There are probably many people here who say, you know what, I can attest to that, either right now or in the past, that I didn't stop going to church, but I was as far from God as I could get. I went to church so nobody would know I was far from God. I went to church to try to convince them to try to somehow just make it right and So it's not necessarily a person who's no longer in church, though it could be. So whatever the reason, whatever the situation, our responsibility, James implies, is the same. We are to have the heart of Jesus toward that person who wanders from God, seeking them out. So who's involved? First, it's the wanderer. Secondly, it's the restorer. You have the wanderer, you have the restorer. He says, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back. Someone, who's he speaking of? He's speaking of anybody in the church. Just someone who is in the church. He's not specifically talking about uh, any position, any person. Uh, by implication, obviously, this is not the job of the pastor alone. Uh, this is a we job. This is not a me as the pastor or just you as a church member. This is a we, all of us, anyone in the church. It's the job of all believers. And we need, obviously, we need more people in our churches today that are like this. Folks who say, I'll be a restorer. I'll be someone who helps, who corrects, who, who restores people. Obviously, this person, this restorer, must be someone of character, someone of holiness, someone of humility, knowing 
I could be that person. Must be a person who is right with God, even though they're not perfect. Now, the tendency is for us to say, well, you know, I don't really need to say anything to anybody because if, if people knew what was going on in my life, and what right do I have to try to correct somebody else? You see how we play this out. That person says, mind your own business. And you say, well, I guess I should because I, whew, you know, I've got some stuff in my life. This is not about perfection. It's about being right with God. It's about having your sins confessed. about living as holy as you can. So it's, it's not about being perfect. This, this restorer is a person who takes it upon himself or herself not to let anyone fall through the cracks. Someone who's not waiting on the church leadership to do all of that. Someone who notices maybe when a person isn't here. But I, I love the, the, the people in our church who will say, hey, have you seen so-and-so lately? And I'll say, no, I haven't. And they'll say, well, I talked to him the other day. Uh, you have no idea what a tremendous blessing that is for me as your pastor. To know that you're not sitting there waiting and saying, well, uh, pastor, yeah, have you seen them lately? Well, no, I haven't. Well, pastor, why don't you do something about it? Now listen, that's part of my job. I'm going to do all I can to try to reach out to the folks that aren't here. That's a given. But there is a we factor in this that I love when people get. Love that. That's what James is talking about. If anyone, if someone restores it, someone goes to them, it's all of us. And I will say that this restorer is not a person who sees correction and criticism as their spiritual gifts. Uh, those are not spiritual gifts, by the way. Correction, criticism, those are not spiritual gifts. Some of us like to exercise those. Uh, we like to claim, well, my spiritual gift is just calling people out. I just tell them how it is. Not a spiritual gift. Not a spiritual gift. Just want you to know that. So this is not something that a person says, well, all right, pastor's calling for restore. I can do that. I, I Listen, I know what people are doing wrong, and I don't mind to tell them. And I don't, uh, listen, I, I'll, I'll read that somewhere in there. Correction is my spiritual gift. Criticism, my spiritual gift. I, not what we're talking about. Someone of character, holiness, humility, a person right with God. Not someone who is seeking out people just to criticize or correct. This is obviously someone who loves people and just simply wants the best for them. So who is involved? You have the wonder. You have the restore. Those two people. What is involved? Well, obviously, as we mentioned, you have help is involved. You come alongside them, much like a coach would, who's coming alongside a player on the team and saying, hey, let me help you fix this. It takes time. It's not a one-time deal. When I coached, I remember day after day after day after day after day, after drill after drill after repetition and so on. That's how you help somebody. Come alongside them. Also involved is correction. This is obviously not about being judgmental or critical. But it's about properly applying the truth to error. And in verse 20, it says the error of his way. So you have help, you have correction. We have to let people know their spiritual house is on fire. This is not about being judgmental. This is about saying, hey, the Bible says this, and I'm seeing this in your life. The two don't match up. What's going on? Now, we, we don't like the word judge. We don't like the word correct in our society. Don't judge me. Who are you to judge me? And so on. I can't judge anyone's soul, meaning that I can't either grant them access into heaven and I can't condemn them to hell. I can't really determine if someone is saved or if they are not. But I can make judgments based upon their behavior as to right or wrong. I can be, based upon the objective truth of God's Word, not my opinions, but on God's Word, make a judgment as to what is right and what is wrong. We don't like that in our society because we like right and wrong to come from somewhere within us. That's just my feeling. It's just kind of what I think. It's just my gut reaction. 
my gut reaction is to go to the Scripture and say, is it right or is it wrong? That's pretty well the way that, that I'm hoping to go about it. So when someone corrects, when someone wants to do that, it's not about being judgmental or imposing your will or thoughts on someone else. It's just simply about going to the Bible and saying, well, this, the Bible says this is right, the Bible says this is wrong, and let's see if we can correct this. And so as a restorer, we've got to see the difference between what a person is doing and what the Word of God says and begin to try to help them to line that up. Now, the Bible obviously makes clear that this form of correction is brotherly in nature, meaning that it's a family sort of deal. It's, it's not in the form of a threat or a strong rebuke. Only God gets to do that. In the Scripture, you'll notice only God is the one who strongly rebukes and threatens people. Now, God has the right to do that. We don't. So this is a form of a brotherly correction. Uh, help is involved, correction involved, restoration obviously involved. Someone turns him back, the verses say in James. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way. This idea of restoration is, is about causing someone to turn around and go back to God. And that obviously is the goal. It's not about being right. It's not about winning an argument. Now those of you that are married, I know that that's never your goal, is just to be right. Never just to win an argument. You're not going to try to correct someone just so you can say, well, I told you. I'm, I'm right. No, of course, we wouldn't do that. But internally, don't we think that sometimes? Well, when we go to correct and to help and to restore someone, it's not so they can say, well, you're right. It's not so we can win an argument. Because the situation is only successful when that person gets back on track with the Lord. And I'll say this, it's not about just getting them back in church if they're no longer coming. It's not what it's about. Will the church help them if they attend? Certainly. But, but that's not the end game. The end game is not to get someone who's not in church now back in church. Well, hey, we did it. We restored them. The idea is to get them restored to God and let Him work on them, and then church will most likely be a part of their life as a result of their devotion and love for God. But if we stop with just getting someone back to church, we've stopped short of fully helping them be restored to Jesus. So what is involved? Help, correction, restoration. How can you be involved? This is probably the most difficult part. And I'll be honest with you, there's no formula for this. There's no three-step process. You can do this, this, and this. Poof, there you go. You're involved in the right way, and the wanderer turns back to God, and you are the restorer, and everything is great. There's, there's no, there's no three-step process. There's no formula. But I want to show you two examples very quickly from the Scripture. First is in 2 Samuel rather, chapter 12. Over in the Old Testament, if you want to hold your place in James and turn there, then feel free. If not, I'll read the Scripture to you in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now this happens right after <clears throat> King David has committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband. And he, he figures that no one really knows, except the people to whom he gave the commands to have Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, sent to the front lines. He figures he's sort of gotten away with it. In verse 1 of chapter 12, Second Samuel says this, So the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he arrived, he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. It lived and grew up with him and his children. It shared his meager food and drank from his cup. It slept in his arms and it was like a daughter to him. Now the traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had just come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for, its, for his guests. 
David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die, because he has done this thing and shown no pity. He must pay four lambs for that lamb. Verse 7, Nathan replied to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house and master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the land and the house of Israel and Judah. And if it was not, if not excuse me, if that was not enough, I would have given you even more. Why then have you despised the command of the Lord by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife as your own wife. You murdered him with the Ammonite sword. Now therefore the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took the, uh, the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. And David responded in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. He was broken. Nathan, the guy who goes to him, Nathan the restorer, David the wanderer, Nathan the restorer comes to him. Some interesting things to note here about Nathan. First of all, he was sent by God. He, he did not take it upon himself to say, you know what? If David did some things wrong, I'm just going to go and call him out. Because somebody needs to. Somebody needs to set that guy straight. He was sent by God. It says, so, so the Lord sent Nathan to David. He went also with God's message. He says, this is what the Lord God says. He went with God's message. He also went at the right time. This was not immediately following the incident. He went in wisdom. He went, I'm sure, with much prayer. As a prophet, Nathan prayed continually. He did not go in what the Bible calls the flesh. This was not an emotional thing for him where he's trying to prove David wrong. Nathan obviously seemed very sensitive to the leading of God. And he was someone David respected and would listen to. Positionally, as the prophet to the king, he was close to David. And it also indicates that he, he went alone. He wasn't trying to make a public spectacle out of what he was doing. The truth is, you, you may be somebody's Nathan. But you have to follow his example. Be sure that if you're going to be the restorer for someone, that God has sent you to that person. Be sure that you go in wisdom. You go with God's message, not just your own opinions and emotions. Be sure that you're someone they will listen to, they'll respect when you go to them. Another example is in John chapter 21, an example of Jesus. And a great story here after Peter has denied the Lord. Jesus shows up to the disciples. They have breakfast together in John 21, 15. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him. I, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. The second time, Jesus asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved and he added that he asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Jesus here restoring Peter. Peter had wandered. Peter had denied Jesus. Peter had drifted. He had been a backsliding Christian, so to speak. Jesus goes to him and showed him love. Seemingly in a very casual conversation, a very loving, brotherly sort of way, he goes to him. In a very unintimidating way, the Bible says, after breakfast, the casual setting, Jesus, a close friend of Peter's, goes to him with the goal of showing Peter, God's not done with you. Look what he has in store. Look what God wants you to do. If you're going to be involved in restoring those who have wandered, those who have drifted from God, you, you and I must have the heart of Nathan, the heart of Jesus toward those that we hope to reach. 
The truth is, it's not worth it. Or excuse me, it's not easy, but it's, it's worth it. The response of David shows that I have sinned. And in Psalm chapter 51, he pours out his heart to the Lord in a poem after this, and he says, Lord, I, I've turned my back on you. God, forgive me. Peter, of course, is restored and becomes a great leader in the church. I had a personal experience with this several years ago, and a young man who was working for me as an intern in our college ministry at a church that I served at in Louisville. And it became evident to me through the reports of some very credible people that, that he and his girlfriend were living in sin. They were not pure. And so as this young man being a, a position, a person in a position of leadership, I, and working for me, it was my responsibility. One of the hardest things I ever did. And I called him into my office. His name's Michael. And I said, Michael, here's what I'm, here's what I'm getting. This is what's going around. Is it true? And he said, yeah, it is. And I said, well, I said, my goal is not to beat you up. I said, my goal is to help you be restored. My goal is for you to, to now turn back to God. It was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do, but I consider Michael today a close friend. And I think he considers me the same way because we went through that. Was I perfect? No. But I knew God had called me in that particular moment to be for that young man, the restorer. As I mentioned, my dad has done that for me before. And I was simply passing along what God had done in me through my dad to another young man. The goal of those involved, two things. James says at the end of these verses, first of all, death is averted. He says, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his life from death. Death is averted. They are ultimately turned from eternal punishment if they are not truly saved. Remember, this could be a person who doesn't truly know the Lord. They've never experienced the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. So you could be instrumental in seeing them turn to God and saved from eternal punishment. And if they are a true believer, they're saved from the disaster of that sin, the destruction in their lives that it will cause. And all it takes is one person who's willing to help, who's willing to correct, who's willing to restore. You may be the person that God uses to save a soul from hell. You may be the person who God uses to help put a family back together, to get a life back on track. So death is averted, destruction averted, and also sins are forgiven. It says, whoever turns the sinner from the error of his way will save his life from death and cover a multitude of sins. The goal here, of course, is not to expose someone, but to see them forgiven and restored. And I'll give you one caution. It doesn't always go as planned. It doesn't always work out. Sometimes somebody will put a finger in your chest and they'll tell you, you worry about you and I'll worry about me. It doesn't always go as planned. What do you do then? And Jesus gave us some words to go by in Matthew 18 when he said, you go to someone. If they don't respond, take another leader with you. Take another well-respected person, a, a strong believer with you. Take the leaders of the church. Go to that person. And ultimately, if they don't respond and turn around, the Bible says you treat them as if they were an unbeliever. Now, we interpret that to mean you kick them out, and you say, don't ever come back here. We don't want anything to do with you. But what does the Scripture tell us that our first stance toward unbelievers is? That is to evangelize them. To show them the love of Jesus and the truth of the Gospel. 
not to kick them while they're down. If a person will not turn back to God, we assume then they do not have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. And so we try to present the gospel to them in a very loving but direct way. As we close, I want you to think of some next steps that you might be able to take based upon the truth of this. All of this is easier said than done. Some of this may say, well, that really doesn't involve me. I don't have anything to do with that. But think of someone in your life that needs some spiritual coaching. Think of someone in your life whose spiritual house is on fire. Think of someone in your life who is wandering from God. Maybe someone that's sitting next to you. Maybe someone you haven't seen in a while. Maybe someone you live with. Maybe someone that God has specifically designed you to reach. How can you be involved? What can you do? When can you go to them? How can you commit to lovingly helping, restoring, correcting them? As a church, are we a church for people who need spiritual coaching? Are we a church for people whose spiritual houses on fire? Are, are we a church for people who are wandering from God? Well, I pray we are. I pray that to the person, to the member of this church, down to the very man or woman, that we say, we will be a church for those who need spiritual coaching. You don't have to be perfect to come here. We'll, we'll be a church for those whose spiritual houses are on fire. Look, if your life is messed up, you come here, we'll help you. We'll be a church for those who are wandering from God. As individuals, my prayer is that you and I will be obedient in this area. The truth is that people are wandering from God. The question is, will we help? Will we lovingly help correct and restore them? And as a final word this morning, I say to those who may be in our congregation this morning, and you may be the wanderer. You may be that person who's strayed from the truth, who is distant from God, who is living your own life the way you want to, and you know in direct disobedience to God. To you, I say Jesus is waiting. I say He loves you. And He went to the cross for your wandering, for the sins you would commit. He died for those. And He stands with open arms, just like the Father in the story of the prodigal son, waiting and looking for your return. If you are the wanderer, today may be the day where you turn around and you receive the love and forgiveness that Jesus offers. He is the answer to all your questions. He is the only one who can meet the deepest needs and longings of your soul. And He Himself said He is the only way back to God. The only way. My prayer for you, if you're the wanderer, is that you'll go through Jesus this morning. Don't just try harder. Don't just say, well, I won't do that again. Go directly to Jesus. Call out to Him and say, Lord, help me. Lord, save me from that. God, I give my life to You. Won't you pray with me? Lord Jesus, as we close this morning, this may be a message that for some we say, well, that doesn't concern me. I don't really see myself as a restorer, but God, I pray that each and every one of us would take the responsibility for those wanderers that you put in our lives, that we would lovingly help, correct, and restore. Lord, for those who are the wanderers this morning, I pray today would be the day. This would be the moment where they turn back to you. 
Praise your word says about the prodigal son that they would come to their senses and realize the love that you have for them, the home that you have for them in Jesus Christ. Lord, may they turn back to you today. Lord, make us a church where people who need spiritual coaching find a home. Make us a church where spiritual houses who are on fire can find people who will help them. Lord, make us a church where spiritual wanderers can be restored. We pray this in Jesus' name.